Hello there, and welcome back to Tales from a Cult Insider. I am, as always, your faithful insider and former unwilling cultist, Jared Garrett. I am not here to whine at you about my childhood. I'm here to tell you stories, and hopefully they never sound like whining. As most of you lovely listeners know by now, I was born and raised in a cult, a real live commune and cult. I know it's crazy. Started out in the 60s as an offshoot of Scientology. It was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment, but then it, uh, when I was born, right about when I was born, the cult broke apart into these dedicated to the process and these others who made kind of a new culty commune called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium, which evolved over the years into the Foundation Faith of God, which is what I called it my whole kind of childhood and teenagehood, and then it finally morphed into Best Friends Animal Society, that excellent and wonderful animal rescue organization down in southern Utah. I'm here to tell you all about being a kid in this thing, in this kind of somewhat strange, secretive, religious commune uh, that became ever less religious, actually, over the years. Kind of a funny thing. Uh, as always, your questions will be answered. I've got a question for today that I'm going to answer from Carl in Bountiful. But before we get to it, please feel free to send in your questions to jared at jaredgarrett.com or uh, tweet me. I'm just Jared Garrett everywhere I go. Um, on Twitter, you can find me on Facebook at Jared Garrett Author, which you, if you want, that's fine. I, or maybe it's Jared Nathan Garrett Author. I don't know. Anyway, find me. Uh, I'm happy to speak to you, your group, your garden club, your book club, your whatever. I do motivational speeches and also do other corporate type stuff. Alrighty, so let's get to this question. Carl from Bountiful asks, here's a big one, by the way. Do you care about the perception some people might have of you going from a cult to another religion? Especially a bit of a weird, by the world standards, religion. Okay, there's a lot there. We're going to try to keep this really brief, because I've got an important uh, episode to, to do with you today. Hoping to keep it to one episode, by the way, today's big story. Okay, uh, first question, do I care about that perception? Nope. If somebody has a weird negative perception of me and my journey from... Uh, cult, be leaving as an atheist, but a practicing Buddhist, uh, albeit not necessarily a devotee of Buddha, uh, to a couple years later joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If somebody else has a weird negative perception of that, that's their problem. I'm really happy with who, where I am. And I don't understand a person who would question the sacred experiences that others have. Um, that just seems both immoral uh, and a real big waste of time on everybody's part. Um, so, no, I do not care about that. Um, and as for uh, going from a cult to another religion, yeah, I mean, sure, you, you know, maybe there's comfort in religion. That's a valid point. That's not the case for me. I was, what happened to me to join this, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was highly unexpected. It was not a quest that I was on. It was just, wow, this is a thing I need to do. Not getting into it from any more than that. Um, and it also said, especially a bit of a weird by the world standards religion, like, yeah, I mean, okay, sure. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a weird church, sort of, kind of, although it's not really. It's it's people who are trying to do the right thing, you know, just like pretty much everybody who in the world, <laughs> in the world, right? Except for actually evil people. Most people are trying to do the right thing. I believe in altruistic uh, motives for almost everybody. Uh, and, and so, sure, the church has a few practices and doctrines that are a little off uh, are outside of uh, what you would normally expect, but a lot of religions do tell you the truth. So I also don't care about that. Um, I'm here to live a life of productivity and faith and happiness with my family. And um, 
I invite you to do the same in your way. And if you want to hear more about my way, let me know. But that's not what this podcast is for. So all that kind of summed right up. No, Carl, I don't care about other people's perceptions about that. If they have a problem, it's theirs. I don't have time for that, nor do I have the energy for it. Uh, and that's that. No apologies whatsoever either. Alrighty. Episode 19. The title is No Idea How to Mourn. Now, that's fairly evocative. Obviously, there's some mourning that needed to be done, and uh, there was no idea how to mourn. But the questions, oh, the questions from you guys, which you're not asking. But I, I know you are. You've been wondering, as you saw the title, and waited for it to download on your Podbean or your Pocket Cast or your whatever, your, your iTunes or Spotify or Google Play. I don't know, man. Um, who's mourning? Who didn't have an idea? What was being mourned? Why didn't there was why or why wasn't there an idea of how to mourn? Folks, I'm going to answer it all. Uh, we're going to do a lead up, and then we're going to get into um, what would what my personal experience was uh, as some ev- events unfolded that uh, were absolutely a turning point in my life, and in a way, a turning point towards wrong in my life. Uh, I lay this out as specifically and um, explicitly as I can in the memoir that I wrote. Uh, but we're going to get it. You'll get it with my voice now. I'm not going to read from the from that chapter, though. Okay, so when I was seven, my I was living in Pennsylvania, and I was uh, having a grand old time. Pennsylvania, as I've mentioned, was one of the was basically my favorite place uh, as as a child. Um, I lived there with several other children, um, both my age and older. I believe I was probably, no, almost certainly the youngest of the kids there. There were cats. There was a beautiful white cat there, a great dog named Chewbacca with big hairy fur, just a really crazy dog who broke free a lot. Talked about him in the last episode. Um, we lived in a big house that was at the top of kind of a long sloping hill. To went down to a goose lake. There was a forest that kind of lined that that, that lake. It... It, 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 as idyllic as you're imagining, that's really how it was, at least how I remember it in my mind. I'm not going to get into the logistics of things too much, but my oldest brother and my brother, Matthias, my older brother, Matthias, and then, so my oldest brother was Daniel, then my other, my other brother, who's three years older than me, Matthias and I, we all lived there. Um, our mother, Magdalene, lived there, and I believe she was one of the kind of uppity-ups there, or kind of one of the poobahs. Um, kind of important, uh, but she wasn't the branch leader. That was Faith. Um, and um, there were several other children there, several of us kids there. I, again, I was six six or seven, so that meant, means Daniel was 16 or 17 or so. Um, he was working at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, he had been brought into the cult old enough to remember what like life outside the cult was and certainly conscious and aware enough to feel like the cult had basically ruined his life. That may be in part, as I've mentioned once, I think at least once, uh, to, due to the fact that uh, his dad had been pushed out by Marianne, the crazy woman who ran the whole cult. So uh, Daniel uh, was never very happy in the cult. Um, he got a job as soon as he could at Dunkin' Donuts, which resulted in donuts sometimes coming to us, which was fan-flipping-tastic, my friends. Donuts are on the reg? Are you kidding me? That What could be better? You know what I'm saying? Sorry for the computer noise. Um Hopefully you didn't hear it. Maybe I just heard it in my headphones. Anyway, so uh, the he was trying to get some independence, right? And and he apparently reached an age in which or at which he could he could get independence. He it turned out he was going to leave. 
Now, Daniel and I, you know, we got along well. I, I certainly uh, revered him as this wise, sage, oldest brother. You know, Matthias also, he and I got along as well. We didn't hang out a whole lot. Daniel and I hung up out a fair amount, and that may have consisted of me kind of just tagging along as much as I could. But Daniel had a life. He'd found some friends after he'd found a job. You know, he was he was getting away from that house more often than, than not. Uh, he had a great dog named Amy, which I've mentioned already. Uh, Daniel could catch flies out of the air and he'd feed them to Amy. That was weird. Um, and uh, But anyway, so Daniel got a job and then he was old enough and somehow he was leaving. It took me by surprise. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of warning. Uh, but suddenly Daniel was actually somehow able to get out. He was getting free of this cult, which had defined our lives uh, my whole life. And he'd been around most of the time I'd been around. I mean, all the time I'd been around, of course, because he's older. But we were also pretty much always in the same place. Um, except for once or twice here and there, I believe. But we were, we were often in the same place. And in this case, we were in the same place as our mother. Uh, I don't know how my mother took it that he was going to leave. Um, I'm sure she didn't take it well. She, she was lifelong, lifelong devoted to, to the foundation after it became the foundation. And really, by extension, to Marianne. I'm not sure what it was about Marianne that drew her that way. But Magdalene, my mother, that did seem to be pretty devoted to her. You know, and loyalty has, has a lot of virtue to it. Um, in many cases. So, um, Daniel was leaving. He got into his friend's car and drove away. And I believe, um, in what I have an episode or not an episode, I have a chapter about that in the, in, in the memoir. It's called, I hate hatchbacks. Um, and that's life. He was gone. Now, the funny thing was that day, uh, as he left, I was like feeling really not good about this. I didn't like the fact that he was going. I felt kind of be like I was being abandoned, um, you know, by, by a person who'd spent some time with me, who looked out for me, uh, who had, you know, reached out and made it, made an actual visible detectable effort to be in my life and to be concerned for me at times. Uh, and, and so, and then he was going. And so I definitely felt like I was being abandoned. I felt you know, I, certainly on some level, I'm sure I felt betrayed by it, um, although I couldn't articulate that to myself at the age of seven. Uh, and, and as I walked away from the driveway where he'd just driven away with his friend, uh, I was on the other side of the, the house looking at the tree line not too far away, which just uh, this is on the side of the house that's opposite of the side that faced the, the, the pond. Um, looking at the tree line, and suddenly I see Daniel leaping out of the trees, his duffel that he had in his hand that he'd brought into the car in his hands, and he was had a big grin, and he yelled, it was just a joke, it's just a joke. Uh, I blinked, and the vision was gone. I'd hallucinated my brother, surprising, and jumping, in, jumping back into my life and not leaving. Um, that only happened the one time. Uh, it was pretty perturbing. I, um, I really don't know where that weird hallucination came from. Um, Something pretty desperate, though, I'm guessing. Uh, so, yeah, he left. And um, that was the last time I saw him. Um, he never wrote me letters. Um, I never heard from him there in Pennsylvania again. After Pennsylvania, I moved along to Dallas for a little bit and then Denver for more than a little bit and then back to Dallas for several years. But while I was in Denver, I turned, um, I believe it was nine, and we were, we had moved from downtown, kind of the downtown area-ish of Denver, where we lived on St. Paul, to Arvada. And we're living in the, um, the, the on the large property there uh, with, it had two residences plus an outbuilding. 
uh, plus a big garden space and several fields around it. It's quite lovely, quite quite spacious, and boy, we, we boys could get into trouble. Mark and I sure did. Uh, we were living there, uh, and uh, let's see, by the time I was 13, I was, um, man, already railing at growing up in a cult. I, I felt restricted, despite all the ridiculous amount of freedom that we had. I mean, when we weren't going to school, we were not being watched by anybody, essentially. Whoever was supposed to be our caretaker, maybe Lucina, I don't know, uh, didn't care much. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be cruel. I'm sure she did care for us and, and, and love us in, in her own way. But we just, man, we just got into stuff for hours. We'd go out in the fields. We'd break into old derelict sheds. We'd, you know, we found some old beat up um, tractors and backhoes and other power uh, vehicle type things, uh, construction vehicles. And in one case, even got one to turn on for a couple of seconds, which was terrifying. But we lived there. Um, and um, one day I must have been reading or something because I was inside and uh, phone rang and I, I must have, I don't cert, I, I don't remember hearing it ring. Uh, I think I have a rec like a reconstructed memory in my own mind of hearing the phone ring. But it must have ring, obviously, because somebody came in and said, Jared, the phone is for you. Confused. This was an adult, right, uh, who said, Jared, the phone is for you. And I was so, like, taken aback. Because, nah, kids were, <laughs> kids were non-people, man. Uh, we, we didn't get phone calls. We didn't have friends outside the cult. You, you know, I mean, in, the, the, the truth was we did. Some of us had friends in school. And a couple of times I, I did talk to my friend Jay, but this is actually after this phone call. This is the first phone call I'd ever gotten in my life, as far as I could recall. It was crazy. I wasn't, I, it wasn't my birthday. Uh, it wasn't Christmas, which I think I sometimes talked to my mother or my father during that, those seasons. But yeah, crazy. I picked up the phone, and there was Daniel on the other line. Holy cannoli, Daniel, my oldest brother, who'd left some six, uh, no, some three years before, two to three years before, um, and who I hadn't heard from since. And boy, we talked for, I think, an hour. By we talked, I mean, he talked a lot, and then he sometimes got me talking, and I really wasn't sure how to draw a conversation from him, but we were some we were able to stumblingly get through a, a really interesting conversation, and uh, Daniel uh, shared where he was. He was in California at that point. He kind of bummed uh, through Philadelphia and maybe New York a little, but then he'd wound up in California, which is where he actually re-encountered his father, I believe on purpose, uh, the father who'd been, of course, pushed out of the cult, and he was uh, just, it sounded, from the sounds of it, he was starting up college, and his father, who had a position at some school, whatever school it was, was helping him get in and get through it, and there was like a benefit, I mean, I know what a tuition benefit's like, because I work for a university now, fantastic stuff, man. So Daniel apparently was going to take advantage of that and going to start going to college, which was fantastic. I was excited for him. He had to be, I don't know, 19 or 20 at that point. And um, that uh, that was a great phone call, man. Uh, I, I talked about my interests. Some of my interests were reading a lot of books, so many books. I was cooking through the Black Stallion books, I think, for the second or third time at that point. Uh, all of them and every book by Walter Farley. And I was um, not too far from picking up on my first Stephen King, as well as my first Robert Ludlum, reading a lot of uh, kind of early fantasy, certainly uh, The Chronicles of Prydain, um, and some other really cool younger fantasy like that. Um, and I was also uh, feeling sorry for myself that I'd never got a chance to be a Boy Scout, even though I was aging out of it. I'd aged out of a lot, some of the stuff already. And so I picked up at the library a Weebelos handbook and was... Um, checking off and uh, passing off many of the skills uh, that a Weebelos uh, scout does. A Weebelos is We Be Loyal Scouts, right, um, for the Boy Scouts of America. 
because uh, I really wanted those skills, man, and I wanted that community, but I was doing it by myself. <laughs> and I was my own kind of leader doing my own little unit patrol thing. Um, so I shared all that, and he laughed a lot, and we had a good time. And then we uh, rang off. That was that. We said goodbye, and um, that was the last time I talked to Daniel. Okay, so like I said, that was the last time I ever heard from Daniel. And I hadn't seen him since I was six or seven, and that I never saw him again. And you know what's coming. So I was living in Dallas. Uh, I lived. I moved there when I was uh, about ten, and um, I was awkward and young and weird. But I'd also I'd already talked about, or I've already talked about, uh, how I didn't adjust well because I was so pissed off about being pulled out of fifth grade in public school and having a bit of continuity there. Um, but then, you know, via the, do the, the congealed cold hot dogs and baked beans, Lucia convinced me that I really needed to make a stronger effort, except that she made me so mad that I decided that I would not leave any doubt that I was perfectly capable of beating the system and beating everything they threw at me because I was stronger, smarter, and better than they thought I was. So, um, yeah, that, that I was, I was 13, so I was already several years into that and, uh, it was going well. I was establishing life there. I was living at Dixie, um, if I recall right. Yeah. And, um, you know, life was just kind of rolling along. And uh, I happened to be at Swiss, the, the house on Swiss, of course, uh, one time. And uh, Lucia called me over. And so the image was this. Lucia's sitting on the couch. And if we're called into the living room where Lucia's sitting on the couch, probably this is going to be a very unpleasant uh, situation Probably it is going to be time to get reamed up and down and have lessons of life taught to you by Lucia's wisdom. And so I was uninterested in the opportunity of this conversation. Um, and so I sat down and was like, okay, here we go. Lucia proceeded to tell me that she had some bad news. And me, with my dramatic mind always, I jumped right to, oh no, did Magdalene die? Uh, did did Enoch die? Which is the name of my father at the time. He was my actual father. He just changed his name back to what it had been given, what the name that had been given to him as a child by his mom. But in the cult, he was Enoch. So, oh no, did, did that happen? Or is something wrong with Matthias? Or what happened to Emma? So I, I was really worried, really suddenly. Uh, but um, no, that wasn't it. Uh, she said, so uh, I never knew him. Uh, I think she, she may have met him very quickly in passing, but I never knew him. But Magdalene, the words that she said were essentially to this effect. Magdalene called me, and I'm sorry to say she heard, she got the unfortunate news that your older brother, Daniel, uh, was killed um, the other day. And I said something along the lines of, what? Um, how? And she didn't know. Um, something about um an accident with a with a friend and a and a gun uh is all that she could share that's all she knew um and um she uh let me know that uh she felt very sorry for uh what what, what had happened and that she wished that, that that she wished me all the best and sent me on my way and i walked away from that news fairly floored um, not really sure how I was supposed to react. I mean, I'd certainly never seen anybody show any kind of mournful, grieving emotion of any kind. Um, <clears throat> I know Matthias was told that day, either before me or after me, and he and I got together, 
that day and talked it out and he, we talked, shared the details that we could, but I didn't see him crying. Um, I didn't see, you know, much in the way of like grief from him, although I know he was feeling it because he's a really, he's got, he's got a deep emotional, uh, well of awesome in him. Uh, Julius did cry. Uh, he was very, very heartbroken because Julius knew Daniel well. Uh, I might've mentioned once that Julius and Daniel and I in the basement of Pennsylvania once of the house in Pennsylvania, Quakertown, we called it, we made a version of, uh, another one bites the dust called another one cuts the crust. And it was about farting. Um, and stuffing sheets in your nose to get to, to avoid the lethal farts. Uh, Julius loved Daniel. They they got along very well. And then David also heard, and David took it very hard because David had been a very good friend of Daniel's as well. Um, so they took it very hard. And so I saw them having emotional reactions. And I and I thought, well, why am I not feeling that, or why am I not doing that? I don't I don't understand why I'm not having that crying reaction. Um, but uh, certainly the knowledge, the, the, the words rang in through my head throughout that day um, that my brother was gone. My, my oldest brother had been killed. And by the end of the day, um, right after, it was actually, you know, it was right, right before the evening kind of prayer ritual celebration began. Uh, Magdalene called and Matthias talked to her. And as I was going, um, Lucia told me that Magdalene wouldn't be able to say much and she had a very short amount of time. So she would, I had to just talk to her briefly and say goodbye. Um, I think so I could get back to this stupid freaking ritual celebration at night uh, or, or scriptures and prayer or whatever. I don't, I forget what, the, what it was called. I should ask one of my, one of the people I know. Uh, so I talked to Magdalene and Magdalene filled in only a couple of details that yes, there had been some kind of accident um, and that um, Daniel had been killed um, in an accident and there were probably drugs involved. Um, and the person who had killed him uh, had been uh, somewhat off his, uh, not entirely neurotypical, um, and there had been some drugs certainly involved, and uh, parents had been involved, had been like threatening uh, stuff. It was all just a bad situation, but there had been a threat, but it was a joking threat or a non-serious threat, but unfortunately the gun had gone off and killing Daniel instantly. So uh, there, that, that's the most I heard at that point. I only found out a few more details later. Those details were that Daniel was actually trying to sell this kid, Simon, drugs uh, because Daniel was trying to make some money and was also, it sounds like, an addict at the time. Um, and Simon's parents had told they, Simon that they didn't want Daniel around anymore because obviously if somebody's trying to sell your kid drugs, you want him gone, especially since Simon was not neurotypical. I don't know what his um, his, his health condition was, but yeah. Um and, and, and it was that the, the fact that Simon picked up a shotgun and said, hey, if you don't go, I'll have to, I'll have to shoot you or, or kill you or something. But he hadn't been serious. You know, it was just a, an empty threat because apparently he thought maybe the gun wasn't loaded. Turned out it was. It was a shotgun and Daniel was killed instantly. So, um, you know, the news of his death rang through me and uh, certainly ended all functional thought for the day. Uh, I remember nothing else from that day except for that phone call. Um, and talking to Matthias a little bit. And that was in the middle of the week. By uh, Sunday, by Sunday they'd planned a memorial service. Um, and I was terrified to the bone about what would happen in that memorial service. I, I knew that at least half of the adults in the Dallas branch were so new that they would never have met uh, Daniel. Daniel had been gone for six, seven years already. He'd left before they even joined. 
and many of them had never seen him because they'd never crossed paths. But they were all going to be at this memorial service. And I knew in my cynical 13-year-old heart that they would cry these beautiful morning tears that were false, 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 like everything else about this stupid cult I was growing up in. I was terrified, but also anticipatorily furious that they were going to do this thing. Uh, Sunday rolled around and uh, I hadn't cried. You know, I, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't like, I didn't feel like I should sit somewhere and stew until I could find some tears. But I had was just chewing on the thoughts and the words of Daniel's dead. He's gone. I won't see him again. But I think in my heart, I'd always thought that I probably wouldn't see him again. Although I imagined and fantasized before that, that I would. And, you know, every so often, sometime after I fantasized that it was all wrong and that I would cross paths with him one day. I even wrote a little story that was inspired by one of those fantasies. Um, but uh, Sunday rolled around and we went to uh, the building that we held our Sunday celebration. They called them celebrations in. And it was essentially the same thing, except for that it was going to be at the end a memorial service. Um, at the far end of the room that we had our celebration slash ritual ceremony in, was always a glass altar, just fully glass, like glass leg, a very di dignified and sophisticated looking glass space agey altar. On top of it, we always had for these Sunday things a bowl of, uh, I believe it was olive oil on one side and a bowl of water. And I think floating in the water was usually a candle that was lit. And I think sometimes there was incense. I don't remember there being incense that day. And sometimes I believe there were uh, arrangements of flowers. But in this case, there were no arrangements of flowers on the altar. Actually, there was a single stemmed dark red rose on every seat um, in this chamber. Uh, the chamber was just a big, long kind of, you could call it a boardroom or a ballroom, I guess. Uh, it fits 50, 60 people in it, um, which was the number of the cult with the kids and the adults, as well as, um, or at least of that branch, as well as any guests. And there were often guests there, people who kind of dabbled in, in the foundation and certainly helped out around uh, the ministering efforts that they had. So, um, or that they made. So, single, single stemmed red rose on each chair. And we sat through this thing, and I sat through this thing, and as the, the celebration wound down and the memorial part came up, Lucia went up and said the, all these words about Daniel and about how uh, it was sad that he was gone, and that we she prayed that we would each take a lesson from his death, uh, that the world was fallen and broken, and I wanted to throttle her. Uh, what kind of terrible thing to say is that? And I tried to capture some of that in Beyond the Cabin as well as my memoir. Man alive, I, it infuriated me. Number one, I was pretty sure she'd never met him. But then trying to take some sort of moral lesson from his death, from his random accidental death, I wanted to punch her. But the truth is, inside me, I knew. I was taking a moral lesson. I had already committed that I was going to be a policeman and I was going to stop drugs. I would stop drugs uh, because drugs were involved in his death. As the memorial kind of wound down at that point, um, lots of tears were being cried, lots of sniffles. And at that point, I just said, screw that. I'm not crying. I'm not crying. I'm not going to be a part of this this insanity, this charade, this, this fake sincerity. And that's really an unkind thought on my part, right? I mean, there's certainly group mourning, which, is, which can be a very cathartic experience. But also there's sympathetic tears, which is a very sweet thing. But also sometimes, in my case, I saw it as fake. And, but there were quite a few people there who knew him. Joanna knew him. Joanna was sweet and she loved my mother and she loved us, her boys, my mother's boys. She was a sweet lady. She's practically my, an aunt, uh, an honorary aunt, honestly. So uh, 
Some of those tears were sincere, and it was certainly stupid and ungenerous of me to, to be judging them. But I committed right there. I wasn't going to cry. No cries from, no, no tears, no cries. No tears from Jared. Um, and at the end, Lucia said, okay, now we'll all take some time to um, spend, send some special prayers and thoughts Daniel's way, heavenward. Uh, I invite anybody who's interested or whose desires to come up here and leave their rose on the altar and offer a prayer up here while they're up here and then return to their seat. And the implication was that everybody would be doing this. That's why everybody had a rose. And you know what? Everybody did. Uh, Joanna was, I think, the first one up, and she was up there for quite a while. And when you went up there to say a prayer, you're supposed to, anytime anybody went to pray at the altar, they were supposed to dip their finger in the oil and run their finger through the, the, the flame of the candle and then put their hands together and say a prayer. Um, and so Joanna put her rose down. She put a finger in the oil, uh, very lightly, a, very, a finger through the flame. Of, so she got a bit of soot on her finger, put her hands together, and said her quiet prayer with her head bent and walked back. And her, I remember her face. She was a sort of a stout lady, sweet, sweet-faced, rounder cheeks, uh, a little bit of a rugged look to her face. And um, tears were just pouring down her those cheeks, just wet, wet tears. And she looked at me and gave me a, a little nod of sympathy and love and moved on. And then the adults went up one by one, and the kids went up one by one, and finally Matthias went up, and then maybe some other kids, and I didn't go up. Finally, I did go up. At the very last, I decided I would. I went up and sat there, or stood there for a minute, just a quick second, put my rose down, pointed my head, my face somewhat upward, and said, Daniel, I'm not crying for you. I'm not going to uh, be weak like these guys. I'm not going to do it. Um but uh, I'm going to live a life of goodness and I'm going to stop drugs uh, for you. I wish you weren't gone. And as I left the altar, I started to get a little emotional, uh, but was able to suck it all back down. And um, then I sat there and clamped it down really tight as the thing ended. And as the thing ended, I felt like I was losing my grip a little bit on, on, on the stuff that wanted to spring out of me. And so as soon as we were, it was over... I darted right out the door, uh, which there were two doors, the front door. I could dart out of the door of this, built, this chamber and then go through a very small hallway. There was a bathroom off to one side and then hit the back door. And then I could go through this back door and be in kind of a, an open space at the back of the building um, and maybe have some time to myself to get myself under control. But that door was locked, man. The back door was locked. And as I tried to get the door open, I was slowed down and Joanna caught up to me. And Joanna said, Jared, Jared, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm so sorry. And I turned around and she grabbed me in a hug. Now, Joanna was a sweet lady and I often got hugs from her just because she was a loving person. And I tell you what, Joanna probably is a part of why I was as sane as I was coming out of that place. Um, because of that intermittent, really once in a while, uh, kindness and generosity and love that she showed me. There were some heroes in that cult, guys. She wrapped me in a hug and squeezed me tight. And I I put my arms around her, did not be rude, and I felt something shake loose in my chest. And I just about burst out crying. I could feel something shaking deep inside me. My tears got, or my eyes got wet, and something started trickling out of my eye and down my cheek and onto her shoulder, and I would not cry. She said, it's okay to be sad. And some, th some other things, but that, it's okay to be sad, is profound right? We all know that's profound. And it would have been even more than okay for me to be sad with her, to experience that and to be vulnerable like that in that moment. But you know what I did, my friendly listeners, and this may turn you off me for good. 
I said, I'm fine. And I pushed her away slightly, not meanly, not rudely, not violently, and turned back to the window and just stared out of it, sucking hard down on all the stuff that was trying to break out, on all the need to break, to, to, to let it go, to be weak, to cry on her shoulder, to be a kid for Frick's sake, and to be mournful and grieving of my brother who I'd lost, and who I'd finally had the emotional, you know, all the stuff needed to come out, and I wouldn't let it out. I said, I'm fine, and turned away. She said, well, tell me if you need anything. I'm right here. And she slowly walked away, certainly hoping that I would not be a complete moron, and that I would turn to her, and that I'd you know, take that hug and let that loose. But I did not. My friends, that was the worst mistake of my life till that point. And I don't think I've made a worse mistake since. Well, I've maybe made one or two worse ones. But that that isolated me in a moment where nobody should be isolated, where everybody, anybody who's going through that needs to be with someone and really should know and feel comfortable to let go of all that stuff that needs to come out to express that grief, the loss, the isolation. But I isolated myself more, and it was my doing, it was my fault, and guess who didn't have any idea to, how to mourn? Me. Those people did okay. The cult did all right in that situation. Um, I wouldn't have minded having somebody try again with me. That would have been great. It would have been nice to have a caregiver who, you know, you know, looked out for me and tried to give me a few opportunities to heal and to overcome and to get through that mournful mourning experience. <clears throat> nope. But it was still on me, man. I made that stupid choice at that back door, looking out on that scrubby, weedy backyard. I said, no, I'm fine, and clamped down the emotion, and um, have been dealing with it since. And I've basically dealt with it. I think the memoir, writing it out, uh, exorcised the last of what needed to come out of me. Uh, now I just have a little bit of frustration at myself, uh, and I need to forgive myself. This episode has become too long. Hopefully you have enjoyed it. Come back for the next episode which is called Faith School, in which I'm going to detail more about Faith School, uh, some of the funny things that happened there, some of the more um, colorful things that happened there, some how I got through it. Uh, but yeah, it'll be one episode devoted to Faith School. Because guys, after all, it was school. But yeah, it was an occult. Thanks for listening. Uh, support as often as you can. Share with your friends. Uh, let me know that you love it. Um, thanks for reaching out, those of you who do. Take care.